we'll take a look at the Heidelberg Catechism, just question 124, and I'll read the question, and you can read the answer. There we go. What does the third request mean? now this morning from Matthew 6. We'll start all the way back in verse 5. It'll give us a refresher on all of what Jesus has taught us so far concerning prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we are in the, the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll read from verse 5 through to verse 10. Before we do, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to learn about prayer, we first want to pray and take time to ask that you would teach us. Your disciples came to you and asked, Lord, teach us to pray. And so we come as well today and say, teach us to pray. And make us to be men and women, boys and girls of prayer. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus, who was the perfect man of prayer. Amen. Matthew 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we've been looking at prayer, we've been looking at obstacles to prayer, things that hinder our prayers, and we, we might just as well call them killers of prayer. And there is, no, there is no more prevalent killer of prayer than the, the sin of pride. Of course, you can, you can apply the sin of pride as a hindrance to any number of the, of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. It's certainly not unique to the prayer of thy will be done. But there is certainly a, a certain degree to which we pray against pride in which we must pray with humility when we come to pray this petition, your will be done. Because implied in our prayer is the negative prayer as well. As we pray positively, your will be done, we pray negatively and not my will if it stands in any way opposed to your own will. And if you step back just a little bit from this third petition, if you step back just a little bit and you, you think about it, you recognize quite quickly I would think just how sad it is that we have to pray this in the first place. Because it means that God who has made the heavens and the earth, and certainly God who has made us, and even who has formed us in His image, 
that we who owe Him everything, even the very breath that we breathe comes from Him, that we would fail to do His will, how ugly is that? And that this creation which He has made, that there would be even one bit of it that would fail to do what He desires. How sad is it that God the Maker should have to teach us to ask that His will would be done, rather particularly than our own will. And we admit and we confess in this request that God's will is not done well. And certainly not done to a degree which is satisfactory to us. Now before we drive too far into the, into the idea of the prayer, your will be done, we need to think and ask ourselves, well, well what particularly do we mean when we say your will? Because you might again, like we did with kingdom, we said, well, there is a sense in which God is already king. And we can as well say that in an ultimate sense, God's will is always done. But that's not the, that's not the kind of will we're speaking about today. We're not speaking of God's ultimate elective will, so to speak. We're talking about God's moral will or his prescriptive will, kind of like a doctor writes prescriptions. I had somebody in the office this week, I'll give really no details except that we were talking and as we were talking, I said, well, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not in the habit of writing prescriptions, but I want to prescribe a few things for you. I would like to prescribe that you seek to ask, act wisely in this situation, that you seek reconciliation with the person that you are at odds with, and that you devote yourselves more, yourself more diligently to the Lord. And so I wrote those three things out because we are very prone to forget things which are told to us. And so I wrote those three things out and I signed it, Dr. Coppers. About a year and a half too early, but that's, that's how I signed it because this was a prescription of what he should do. And that's exactly how we need to think about this, that, that when we say God's will, may your will be done, we're asking that what God wants to be done will be done. What pleases God, what God desires to be done, will be done. And we, we see God's will prescribed for us a number of places in the Scripture. We read from the Ten Commandments, that's a, a prescription for how God desires for us to live and, of course, how He desires for us not to live. And the Sermon on the Mount is full of instruction of what God desires, even this portion on prayer. The Lord Jesus prescribes for us how we shouldn't pray and how we should pray. We shouldn't pray like the hypocrites who love to be seen, who pray long prayers. Or we shouldn't pray like the pagans who babble on and on and on and on. We should pray simple, humble, holy prayers. So God prescribes for us how we pray and how we don't pray. And so we see that when we pray, your will be done we ask that what God desires to be done, be done. We read that in the Catechism, and John Calvin as well helps to shed some light on this. He says that when we pray this, we pray that all creatures may obey Him without opposition and without reluctance. Now that's a big prayer. All creatures obey God without opposition, and without reluctance. It almost seems to be an impossible prayer, and in some sense it certainly is an impossible prayer. If we expect that God will answer this prayer in its fullness within moments of our asking it, we are bound to be disappointed. We're bound to be disappointed because the Lord will not make all things new until He comes to make all things new. 
But just because it won't be answered in fullness immediately does not mean it's not worth praying. We should never, as we might say, let the perfect be the enemy of the good or let the best be the enemy of the better. When we pray, your will be done, we pray that it would be done more. We desire to see improvement. And where we see improvement, we will rejoice. And we will celebrate improvement in the doing of God's will wherever we find it, but we will not be satisfied until there is no more room for improvement. And in this, in this way, the, the, this prayer, if your will be done, this prayer is a prayer expressing a holy discontentment. We will not be content until God's will is perfectly done. But we will celebrate every time we see that God's will is more done. And so while we desire for the ultimate, we desire for the day when there is no trace of sin in us, and we desire for the day when there is no trace of sin in anyone else, we desire for that day, yet we are happy whenever in this time God takes our hearts and molds them just a little bit more. God takes another person and brings them to a point where they more diligently seek to do God's will. We're praying that what God desires to be done will be done. And when we pray this, as we prayed with your kingdom come and start with me, so we must pray that same thing with this prayer, your will be done and start with me. And it's, again, sad that we would have to pray this. Because not only are we made by God, not only do we owe every breath we take to Him, but we are His sons and His daughters. We are blood-bought saints who have seen the love of God in a way that transcends even the fullness of our understanding. We have known the love of God and that we who have known the love of God should have to pray, Your will be done, is an indictment of our flippancy and the way we take God lightly and take His love lightly. It should lay us low in the dust of humility. But we need to pray this. Because we in our natural selves, as Paul says, we in the flesh are prone to doing the exact opposite of the will of God. We are prone to self-centeredness. We are prone to faithlessness and to insubordination and to pride. Paul speaks even of himself in this way. He says in Romans 7, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. In Paul's flesh, everything in him wants to rebel against God. Only as he receives the Holy Spirit and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is he able to do anything which pleases God. And he goes on in Romans 8, 7 and 8. says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, that is our sinful nature, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then who can forget the the condemning words of Ephesians 2, verse 2, that we are by nature children of wrath. When we pray your will be done, we are praying for an entire 
reworking of our person, an entire reworking of our soul. We're praying that our hearts would not be prone to that faithlessness or to that pride. We're, we're praying against our divided loyalties. We're praying against our rebellions against God, against our seeking our own glory. We, we're praying against our, 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 the natural leanings we have towards disobedience and against the desires of the flesh. We, we pray against ourselves in the Lord's Prayer. And we pray positively for God's will. The Lord implies negative things in the Lord's Prayer, but He expresses it largely positively. As the Ten Commandments are expressed largely negatively, so the Sermon on the Mount here is expressed positively. While we pray against ourselves, Jesus focuses on praying for God's will to be done. And so we pray that what God desires for us to do would be indeed what we do. J.I. Packer, again, has this excellent little book on the Lord's Prayer. He says this, Every word of the Lord's Prayer reflects the Lord's vision of what our lives should be. A unified, all-embracing response to the love of our Heavenly Father so that we seek His glory, trust His care, and obey His word every moment of every day. Shouldn't that be our desire? That we would seek His glory trust his care, and obey his word every moment of every day. Your will be done, yes, and in me. But now how do we, how do we fill this out? Remember that the, the Lord's Prayer is, is kind of like a skeleton. It's okay to pray the Lord's Prayer in itself. In fact, that's a good thing to do. It's good to teach ourselves that. But, but we, we aren't required to only pray the Lord's Prayer, that we can sort of use that as a skeleton and we can put the, the flesh on it ourselves. So how do, we, how do we fill out the prayer when we say your will be done? How do we add to that? Well, I think we can add to that by asking God to do a number of things to benefit us as we seek to do His will. We might say first, if we're going to do God's will, we have to be given eyes to see God's will. And Paul prays that the Ephesians would have that. Ephesians 1, verses 17 and 18, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, something would be revealed to us in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? We, we want to see. We can pray, Lord, open my eyes to see Your will. But we don't just want to see His will. We want to do His will. So we pray, not just let me see. We don't want to see and then walk away. Oh, that was nice to know. I, I wonder what I should do. That we, want to, we want to see and we want to do. And we see this as well from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that we should strengthen our hearts. Ephesians 3, 16. Paul prays again that according to the riches of His glory, He, God, may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. We want to see, we want to have strength, but we also want to be glad. We do not honor God if we know what we should do and we do it, but we don't do it gladly. Right? We should obey right away all the way and with a happy heart. That's what we say in our, our house is true obedience. If a child goes away obeying and doing it all the way, but they do it like this and they're 
pouting about it. That doesn't, that doesn't honor parents and doesn't honor God. So we should pray that we will see God's will, that we will have strength to do God's will, and that we will have gladness. The psalmist commands himself and us to do this. Psalm 100, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Let me see. Give me strength. Fill me with gladness. And then what what do we pray more? We pray, well, make me diligent to do your will. Don't let me be, be a slacker in doing your will, seeing and having strength for a moment, but then the moment is gone. But make me diligent and enduring. He who endures to the end will be saved. And so we see as well that the psalmist prays this, as we, as we saw last week as well. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Make us steadfast, make us strong in doing what you desire for us to do And then, as we say, let me see, make me strong, give me gladness, and give me diligence and steadfastness, then we pray as well, give me zeal. Make me to love doing your will. Romans, Paul says in Romans 12, 11, he commands, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This is how we fill out this prayer for ourselves. Let me see, give me strength, make me glad, make me firm, and fill me with zeal. And all of this, Jesus says, is like the angels in heaven. The angels in heaven, we want to be like them in this respect. We want to be like them because the angels see God's will for them perfectly. And God gives them exactly the amount of strength they need to carry out whatever His will for them is. And they have a fullness of joy. And they never falter from infirmity or weakness. And they are always zealous. And so we pray that we will be like them. That we will do as the angels do in honoring of God. And the psalmist again in Psalm 103 commands himself, calls himself to be like the angels. 103 verses 20 to 22 He says, bless the Lord, O you His angels. And how does He describe them? You mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Verse 21 is about the angels as well. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, and all places of His dominion. And then what? Bless the Lord, O my soul. As the angels bless the Lord, So bless the Lord my soul. As the angels do His will, so let me do His will. The psalmist commands himself. Do you ever talk to yourself? That sounds like an odd question, right? We usually think of people who talk to themselves being a little goofy. But but in the Bible, there's lots of people who talk to themselves. And here the psalmist talks to himself and he says, Self, praise the Lord. And sometimes we need to give ourselves a pep talk. Right? We need to say, You have to want to do it, Ben. You have to want to serve the Lord. You wake up in the morning and you say to yourself, today I will serve the Lord. There has to be a resoluteness. There has to be a desire. And we don't always desire that. There are days you wake up and it's not the first thing on your mind. It's not even probably the 50th thing on your mind. And so we have to train ourselves to desire, to want to serve the Lord, to do His will, and to honor Him with our desires. As we do His will, God's will is a recipe for peace. There's no quarreling in heaven. The angels do not fight. 
They do not have any animosity with God. They are not hostile to God in any way. The angels have a perfect peace with each other and with God, and they have a perfect peace with themselves. There is no inner turmoil or angst in them. The the angels are at perfect peace. God's will makes for peace. And as we follow the will of God, we have peace, perhaps in ourselves. If you consider the things that cause you anxiety, generally speaking, they are things where you have not obeyed the will of God. But do you think as well, the will of God makes for peace in a marriage. Those of you who have gone through premarital counseling with me, this is going to be review. But the will of God makes for peace in a marriage. You go to the, to the end of chapter 5 of Ephesians, the beginning of chapter 6, and God lays out his, his design for family. And Paul addresses first the husbands as the head of the house, and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. And he expresses his will for the husband, and he says, Man, it is your job to love your wife before yourself. It is your job to live perpetually in service to her, in sacrifice to her. Even as Jesus loved you enough to give himself for you, so you must give yourself for your wife. In everything that you do, she is to be a priority over yourself. You are a servant a very dignified leader servant. That is your role. And then he says to the wife, and wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. That does not mean, that word submit, boy, that, that sends shivers down the, down the spine of our feminist culture, right? But it doesn't mean that you submit. You don't submit as some kind of doormat letting your husband walk all over you because if he's following the will of God and doing what he's doing, submission is a joy. Because what it means is you let, you let your husband serve you. you know, sometimes we have this false sense of humility where we don't want to be served. Oh no, I can open the door for myself. Oh no, I don't need your help. But then, no, that's not, that's not godly, especially in a marriage. A wife is supposed to let her husband serve her. To submit herself to his service. And just, just picture the peace. If the husband is always putting the wife's interest above his own, and the wife is always allowing him to do it, where is the problem? Where are the fights? Where are the quarrels? But there's no quarreling. There's no fighting. Now our marriages aren't perfect, but God's will for the marriage would make for peace. And then as well, the, the father's relationship to his children. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the fear of the Lord. Disciple your children, discipline your children, but don't exasperate them. And then what does Paul say to the children? But he says, children, honor your parents in the Lord, for this is right. If a husband, if a father is diligent in discipline and discipleship without exasperating, and a child is diligent in honoring and obeying, again, there is a recipe for peace. The will of God makes for peace. It makes for peace in ourselves. It makes for peace in marriages and families. And it makes for peace in churches. What is God's will for us? The God's will for us is that we don't gossip and slander. Churches would have a lot less drama if there was less gossip and slander. The will of God for us is that we would be generous with ourselves, generous with our thoughts, with our words, with our resources, and with our time. The church would be a peaceful place if everybody was invested in it and in its ministry, and if we were invested in one another, if we loved each other as God has loved us, if we loved each other, then there would be peace. God's will always makes for peace. It is worth praying this prayer 
that God's will would be done. But I think there, there is something that perhaps holds us back from this prayer. And it is in some respect kind of a holy reservation. In some respect it's unholy, but in one respect it's holy because we recognize that when we pray your will be done, that it might cost us something. In fact, it will almost always and certainly cost us something. We might ask the question, what will it mean for me? What will I have to give up? What will the cost of my discipleship be? There is a cost to discipleship. And sometimes the cost can seem to be almost devastating. You can think of a couple examples of this. The first from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul embraces the cost of his discipleship. He embraces the cost of God's will in what I think is a familiar, fairly familiar passage from 2, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 10. There the Apostle, having seen a great vision of the Lord, says this, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you catch that last part? What a profound sense of humility. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. He is weak. Why is he weak? He is weak according to the will of God. He is weak because God was to use him as an apostle, would reveal himself to him in an extraordinary way, and the Lord did not want him to be humble, and so he made him weak. And what does Paul say? He says, I am content. And I'm convinced that the Lord did not have Paul record what his thorn was so that we could project whatever our thorn is onto his. Because there is almost certainly in the course of our lives going to be something that we want to be taken away and which will not be taken away. And if it can happen for an apostle like Paul, then we know that God can still love us even if he does not take the thorn away. But what does Paul say? I am content. I am content with the will of God because it keeps me humble. Paul knew that God's will was for his good, even when it didn't feel good. But of course, how could, we come, how could we come through this petition without recognizing and embracing the single greatest instance of practicing what you preach the world has ever seen? It does not get any better than this, because Jesus not only taught his disciples to pray, your will be done, but Jesus said, your will be done in the moment of great agony. You go to the Gospel of Luke, Luke 22, 41 to 44, and there we read this. Jesus is in Gethsemane, the garden, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. 
And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. This is the time immediately before Jesus' arrest. And you can just, you can just almost feel the humanity of Jesus pouring off the page as you sense his anxiety, as you hear his prayers. He, here is a man who is distraught, who is terrified because he knows what awaits him. In just a, a few moments, he's going to be arrested. And the following morning, very early in the morning, he's going to be tried and convicted in a sham trial before a sham jury. Then he's going to be flogged to, until the point where he's unrecognizable. And then he's going to be crucified. But that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is that he's going to be assaulted with the full wrath of God against sin against your sin, against my sin, against every last hellish bit of it. And he's going to bellow out from the cross those words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's going to be crushed, as the prophet Isaiah says, for our iniquities. And when it comes to iniquities and sin, God is the perfect crusher. And Jesus, in all the face of that, is terrified because he knows it. And Martin Luther said this, never man feared death like this man did. And for good reason. Never any man would suffer in death like this man did. This was going to be the worst experience anyone had ever had, and it wasn't even going to be close. You think of Abraham. Abraham's great anxiety as he walked up the mountain being commanded by God to sacrifice his own son, and as he raises the knife, how his heart must have been pounding in, in terror and in sadness. We think of Job. Job who had everything it seemed one could ever want and then lost it in horrific way after horrific way after horrific way. Yet Abraham and Job have nothing on Jesus as far as suffering goes. Because they both still experienced the pleasure of God, whereas Jesus upon the cross experienced the wrath of God. And so Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. In his, in his humanity, he pleads for another way. If there is any other way, give me that. Maybe this, maybe he holds out hope. Maybe this can be like Abraham. I'm willing and then Abraham is spared at the last moment. Maybe he holds out hope. If there's any way, if this can just be a test, give me that. Then he follows it up immediately. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And you missed that part. Then an angel comes to strengthen him. And you wonder what that conversation may have looked like and what that strengthening may have, may have been. But you have to know that at some point in that conversation, in that strengthening, the angel told him the Lord's answer is no. Because as soon as the angel departs from him, Jesus', Jesus terror ramps up to the extent that his sweat and his anxiety anticipation that his sweat becomes blood as the capillaries in his forehead begin to burst. And yet even knowing that all that lay ahead of him was there, he still went. He went and he went to go do the Father's will. He went to endure a suffering that
that is so great and so terrible that even if we were to try to plumb its depths for all eternity, we would still not comprehend it. Why did he go? Because he trusted God. He trusted his Father. And in fact, we read elsewhere in the Scripture that Jesus goes to the cross for the joy that was set before him. He so trusts his heavenly Father that he believes that even the horror of the cross would be worth it. Because it would not only be for our good, but it would be in the end for his good. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus is eternally glorified through the cross. And that even the cross had joy for the Christ. He goes to the cross in faith. You know, one of the one of the straining, kind of the emotionally grinding things about preaching, and this certainly is not unique to me, one of the emotionally grinding things about preaching is being always aware of the gap between the commands that you preach from God's Word and your ability and willingness to keep those commands. When you say, pray God's will be done, and you use Jesus as an example, you think, oh, I fall far short of the example of Christ. But you know who never had the the horrible feeling of failing to practice what you preach? Jesus never had that. Even in the worst of circumstances, Jesus still prays, your will be done, even though it was an, an immeasurable cost to himself. Still he prayed. What a wonderful Savior. And as we come to this petition, these simple words, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we come to words which can only be prayed in faith. These can only be prayed in faith. Jesus could only pray them in faith. We can pray them in faith. Faith that our Father knows what is best and what is best for us. Faith that we belong to him, as the catechism says, body and soul in life and in death. And at the very bedrock of our faith and our prayer is we believe that he loves us. Even if sometimes it doesn't feel good, we believe that he loves us. Jesus prayed in that very same faith, and he had that faith. By God's grace, we ought to have it too. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we do ask, as your Son taught us to ask, that your name would be revered, that your kingdom would come, and that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would give us a revelation to see your will strength to do it, gladness in it, perseverance and great zeal. We pray that you would cause your will to be done in our lives and in this church and in your church as she has spread across the earth and across this, your world. And Lord, we ask that you would give us faith. Faith to pray this prayer, your will be done, and to know that when we pray it, we ask for a good And not only good, but good for us. And so now we pray as your Son taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We'll remain seated now as we take our mission offering. This month it goes for Angel Academy. And we'll sing a hymn, number 12, Immortal Invisible. 